You're listening to the Alpha Man Project with your host, Ted Rice. Would you like to be bigger, leaner, and stronger? Do you want to develop the confidence to go after what you want in life? Or how about becoming the man that women want to be with? It doesn't matter if you're a successful CEO or working 9 to 5. We're here once a week to empower you to reach your full potential so you can live life on your own terms. You deserve greatness. Now it's time to make it happen. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast feed. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Find it all at alphamanprojects.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Alpha Man Project. I'm your host, Ted Rice. And guys, have you ever seen the advertisements for testosterone boosters in muscle magazines or maybe online? Or have you seen those advertisements for like Androgel on TV? And people talk about testosterone and low testosterone. And people talk about growth hormone and exercise and talk about insulin and obesity. Have you ever wondered whether that's just a bunch of marketing BS or how much truth there is to it? Well, Stay tuned because today I'm interviewing Dr. Carl Nadolsky, who is a board-certified internal medicine doctor, but he's also completing his fellowship in endocrinology. And endocrinology, guys, is the study of hormones. And besides all that, he actually lifts, bro. So he is in great shape. He's a former wrestler who competed at a very high level and has a kick-ass double egg takedown for you guys who are interested. And he is gonna be telling us all about the hormones, what works, what doesn't, what's just the media hype, and I'm super pumped about this. What's up, Carl? Thanks so much for being here today, man. Hey, how you doing? Great to be here. Excellent, and we like to get things rolling with a quote, so what do you have for us? One of our favorite quotes these days is that we think we all should practice what we preach, especially in medicine. We're big fans of doctors being good role models for patients, and that's something we strongly believe in. And sometimes when I don't feel like working out, I do it just for my patients. Oh, wow. That's such an excellent point. And that really goes for all of us, right? Our parents being good role models for kids, but especially in the area of medicine. I mean, when we were talking earlier, I know a cardiologist who smokes. And I know so many doctors, well, I'm in Miami Beach, so it's a particular type of place. You get those types of people here. But yeah, it's so important, and that's why I have a ton of respect for what you're doing. You're trying to lead by example, and you're also trying to cut through the BS and give people evidence-based information to help them live better lives and avoid spending money on some of this bullshit. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. So, Carl, let's get into your background, man. Let's talk about the wrestling. Let's hear about how you got to where you are today, where you're actually studying to help people who are challenged with obesity, but you've never been obese yourself. I want to hear all about that journey and to let guys know what you're about and where you came from. Right on. So when I was little, I'm four and a half years older than my younger brother, Spencer, who's uh, followed in my footsteps and we work together. My dad was a biology teacher, he was a wrestling coach, he was a football coach. My mom was a sailor, and I was really intense when I was a little kid. I got into wrestling pretty early. I was a Hulkamaniac. They got me a Hulk Hogan workout set when I was like five or six years old. As soon as I was able to go with my dad after elementary school to the high school gym, which back 
in the 80s, we only had this old Universal. I was pumping iron, we got Spencer into it, and you know, played football, and then eventually wrestled for Michigan State, had a nice career there as a four-year starter, four-time NCAA qualifier, had some big victories and some tough losses at the tough times at the NCAA tournament. But it's that sort of background in you know, being a scholar athlete, being interested in science, human biology. I majored in exercise physiology in addition to pre-med. But if you take all that together and you think, well, what can we do to help people? We thought, what I can do to help people and actually make a living is become a doctor and focus on all the, what we call comorbidities or the diseases that come from not only a poor lifestyle, which we can certainly help to try to fix, but also it's a lot more complicated than that that we, you know, maybe we'll get into. But that's really kind of the short story, and a lot of that is endocrinology or hormone-related, and, and that's what led me to doing endocrinology, and I also have kind of a, a part of endocrinology is, uh, you know, I got certified in obesity medicine, and kind of that cardiometabolic risk, that uh, cardiovascular risk, which includes, you know, brain, strokes, heart attacks, you know, all that stuff. Awesome. Yeah, that's quite a resume, man. And really happy to have you on the show to spell some of these myths and to really help guys understand what's going on. So let's start with this. A lot of what we hear in the media is that calories matter. It's all about calories. Then it comes down to, you know, oh, well, all calories aren't created equally. And there's all these hormonal effects I want to hear what your perspective is on that because you're a medical doctor and you're doing all this stuff. You're studying hormones specifically. So clear this up for us, man. Well, you know, the unfortunate thing is the more we try to clear this up, the more confusing it might be. <laughs> but so this is funny because we get involved in this debate all the time. And I think most doctors get confused because you have really, really, really smart people who take data and there's a lot of good data to show that certain excess amounts of certain calories in certain people who have certain genetic predispositions absolutely do have maybe worse issues. So we're talking, you know, the sugar is toxic stuff, higher glycemic indices and loads of carbs are associated in, you know, in associative studies with diabetes, but also with obesity. And really when we talk about diabetes, other than genetics and some other little specifications for type 2 diabetes, it's really about the visceral obesity, the, the belly fat. So we talk a lot about really trying to target that, and that has to do with genetics and other complexities. So there is the one camp who's taken all these studies and our knowledge of insulin, and insulin is an anabolic hormone, and it absolutely does, it, when used excessively or appropriately, you know, can lead to weight gain in the setting of excess calories. So there is an energy balance issue, but they basically cherry-pick that to say, oh, and it's only in one side of this debate, for whatever reason, you have a group of people who want to believe or strongly believe that it's purely insulin. So they use a lot of our good data to show that obesity is much more complex than what we want to think it is, and that is true. It's a very complex disease from our brain, our neuroendocrine system, our psyche, to our hormones, our metabolism, and communication with our fat cells. But then they take all that true stuff and then they say, well, it's, that's because it's only insulin. And they blame it all on insulin, which is the reason they can do that is there's some partial truth to that. There are a lot of epidemiologic studies, which are purely you know, association studies, that show diets that are higher in glycemic load and glycemic index are associated with 
abdominal obesity and metabolic syndrome and diabetes. But the problem is for insulin to be anabolic and add fat, you still have to be in a caloric excess somehow, whether that is, yes, and then the other side of the coin is, oh, it's just calories in, calories out, which is also kind of true. The truth always lies somewhere in the middle, and it is a lot more complex than just a pure, perfect little equation because everyone's different, and there are other issues that alter that equation to some degree, and even certain foods do have certain issues. Like you'll hear a lot of us say, well, protein has a little bit better thermogenic metabolic effect. So, you know, you may right. not gain, gain as much fat. And that's to some degree true. There is some truth to the glycemic index. So when they do studies, to intervention studies to actually look at this, yeah, glycemic index does matter to some degree. Glycemic load does matter. But when they really, really control the intervention trials for weight loss specifically is what we're talking about, all the different macronutrient diets tend to work. And the key is, or who sticks with what diet? There are some other issues in the weeds, and that gets into cardiometabolic health, and it gets into individualization where it does matter. For example, if I already have a patient who's either prone to or has metabolic syndrome, absolutely, you know, I don't want them eating a high glycemic load diet. I want to get them more to bed. I want to cut those calories out. But then you look at lean athletes and bodybuilders, well, they're eating huge, enormous amounts of glycemic loads for because they have to, and they're lean, and they're metabolically healthy. And so then it becomes even more of an equation of uh, calories in, calories out to some degree. So the answer is yes and no, but it's not as perfect as either side would like it to be, I guess. Yeah. Let me try to interpret what you said there <laughs> for the listeners. Basically, there are these hormones that play an effect on how much fat we put on our bodies. But for that to happen, you have to be eating more calories than you're burning. Right. And on the flip side of that, for the calories in, calories out people, yes, that's true. It is your calories in, calories out. But there's all these other variables, like how active you are, how mm -hmm. healthy you are. Yeah, right. okay. Muscle mass. That, yeah. How much mass, right, to be more specific, how much muscle mass you have, yeah. things like that. Right. Well, what would you say, since we're on the fat loss topic right now, what would you say to those guys who are interested in learning about how healthy they are metabolically? Should they be worried about their fasting insulin, their fasting glucose, their hemoglobin A1C? Like, how do you track the metabolic health with blood chemistry and hormone measurements, that type of thing? Sure. Well, the answer to those questions is yes. Probably everyone, adults at this point, should have probably some sort of yearly assessment by a physician. And then the more risk factors you have, the more in-depth you need to be. And there are certain guidelines that recommend certain times. I'm part of the group that thinks you should at least have a baseline as early as you can when you're an adult. And that should include an assessment of adiposity, meaning how much fat you actually have. I'm part of a group that's working on making a new diagnosis for obesity. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of waist circumference because that's so much stronger correlation to cardiometabolic disease, death, heart disease, et cetera, than, say, just BMI. But right. the problem is BMI, as it turns out, is, is actually a pretty good screening tool. So screening just means we want to catch a lot of people in the net that we can help. So my BMI is like 30, right? So I'm obese by <laughs> BMI. Right. And, you know, and I have a generally single-digit body fat, depending on how you you're measure it. You're pumped and you're ripped. Exactly. And you could probably and, and get I, up in pose <laughs> in a bodybuilding competition. 
I'll do it tomorrow. Uh, nice. Not really. Not really, but I would. Yeah, exactly. And I also have, and we'll talk about the different cardiometabolic measurements you talked about, but I'm in great cardiometabolic health. So as far as me being obese, it's more of a clinical judgment to say, no, I'm not. You know, or we could do a DEXA scan or, or something else or just say, well, my waist circumference is low and all my other labs are okay. So that's kind of step one. You should understand your risk based on how much belly fat you have and other issues, all aspects of health, from mental health, family history. You know, if you have a strong family history of heart attacks and it's not like everyone was smoking and drinking and they were obese, then you should have other things checked, specifically lipids. So generally people are going to get a basic lipid panel and we can do a lot of good with that. A lot of people like to debate cholesterol on the internet. That's another one that everyone loves to debate because there are people who for some reason endorse drinking butter, which I think is a processed, refined, excess, non-necessary amount of palmitic acid, which does increase atherogenic lipoproteins. Lipoproteins are the little molecules that carry cholesterol. So when we measure cholesterol, for example, low density, lipoprotein cholesterol. That's what you hear about is the bad cholesterol. Right. That is strongly correlated with increased plaque buildup in arteries. And we know that lowering that improves outcome. But it's not as good in people who have high triglycerides, which are the fat molecules that also have to be carried by lipoproteins. And generally, it's the people with belly fat, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, who have excess triglycerides floating around because they have higher inflammation, they have more free fatty acids that are being released from their fat cells, and those need to be carried around. And then what happens through some specific enzymatic lipoprotein metabolism issues that we don't need to get into, that's when the HDL, the high-density lipoprotein that carry cholesterol, that those get smaller and they get broken down and you urinate them out. So that's why you hear the high triglycerides, low HDL is part of metabolic syndrome. When that happens, for whatever level of cholesterol is being carried in your low-density lipoprotein. So let's say it's 100. 100 sounds like a really good number for LDL cholesterol. But if your triglycerides are 300 and your HDL is 25 or 30, then your actual number of low-density lipoproteins, or if we measure apolipoprotein B, this gets complicated, but people like to hear this, that's a protein on those lipoproteins, or you can just measure LDL particle number. That is much more strongly correlated than LDL cholesterol because it accounts for all the different atherogenic lipoproteins. And that, what about the particle size? Okay, test? so yeah, so that it that it that plays a role with particle size, and this is an interesting thing that gets brought up on the internet too. Because if you only look at particle size, when you have more particle numbers, you generally have the smaller, and we call them the smaller sticky. You know, these aren't the correct terms, but and they're more atherogenic lipoproteins, whereas the bigger fluffy ones are not as atherogenic. But when you control for LDL particle number or ApoB, the size suddenly doesn't matter anymore. So if all you look at is the size, yes, it matters because that generally goes along with that metabolic syndrome that we're talking about. When you have more triglycerides, less HDL, more LDL particles, you generally have a bunch of smaller LDL particles. So if that's all you look at, yes, that's pretty strong. And that's what a lot of these people will say. Oh, you know, I have a bunch of big ones. But in the studies, and that's all we have to go on is the evidence, when you control for that, it's really the particle number that matters. So some of these people, in fact, I presented a case at American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, and they published it on MedPage Today, or yeah, MedPage Today, and you know, people get all bent out of shape. Spencer and I both had patients who decided to start drinking bulletproof coffee. Yeah, I just want to rewind a little bit because we're talking about some pretty heavily, some a lot of jargon and 
complicated medical terms. So let's, let me just back up just a tiny bit to actually the waist circumference. So you were saying use BMI, but BMI is not a great indicator. It's just to catch people in the net. So guys, what Carl is saying there is just use it, but it may not be representative of you if you're a guy with a lot of muscle and low body fat like Carl is, but doing your waist circumference, and that's just measuring your belt loop, right? Measuring well, how wide you not, are. Yeah, not quite. It's really more, you know, it's above your hip bones, around your belly button, more or less. Around your belly button. Right, yeah. thanks for clarifying that. By the way, that's where I do it, Carl, with okay. my clients. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And also, what do you think about DEXA scans versus like a in-body bioimpedance device? Well, those are just more detailed ways of looking at measurements of fat. Clinically speaking, it's not really that relevant. So in these new guidelines that I was a part of, we screen with the BMI, but then we really look at waist circumference, and then we look at every other aspect that can come from disease, from being obese, including all those metabolic things we were starting to talk about, and other mechanical things. But there is a section where you can use clinical judgment to say a person does or does not have obesity when they didn't actually kind of get screened in or have those things. And, you know, we mentioned DEXA scans, and you could use bod pods. But really, those are probably better for research situations right now, or if you really need to have it done for your insurance not to screw you or something like that. Does that make some sense? Right. And so you just say, measure your abdomen, measure waist circumference at your belly button. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there are other measurements you can do. They also do you look flex at- or do you just let it hang? <laughs> do you take well, a deep breath in and blow it out? How do you do it? Well, I flex. <laughs> I, I don't have my <laughs> no no I mean you just relax I have the patients just relax and to be honest it doesn't change that much we just do all sorts of goofy stuff but most Good. of my patients you know and guys this is something we can do ourselves we don't even need to although we should be going into the doctor I don't think most actually no doctor I've ever been to has ever had me do a waist circumference but this is something we can do on our own Right. That's true. And the mirror, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking in the mirror and saying, well, okay, I got to lose a little belly. And if you can see your abs, then you're probably doing okay. Now, you mentioned something earlier about the visceral fat, like the fat around your organs versus the subcutaneous fat, which is on the outside of our muscles, which is beneath the skin, guys. I've had a client He's an older gentleman and he likes his scotch at night, every night. <laughs> and I could pinch just a little bit on the, of his subcutaneous fat, but he still had this belly. Is that visceral fat inside that's causing a lot of these bloated looks on yeah. people? Yeah, that is much stronger correlated with all the diseases we're going to talk about. A recent study showed that in every little category of BMI, so even what you would consider thin, there is a huge J-shaped, really more of a, just a straight curve of significantly increased mortality, meaning death, within each, you know, as your waist circumference increases. So the people who actually have it the worst are who you might consider skinny, but with a abdominal obesity, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so people have thin arms and legs, but their belly is big and round. Right, right. And there are some medical issues that if someone's like that, they need to see their doctor because there are some other issues. But that's the highest risk of coronary heart disease. Wow. So for you listeners out there, start measuring your waist circumference. 
in case your doctor doesn't do it for you. All you guys should have a good doctor out there. And unfortunately, we can't go. And where are you at, Carl? Right now, I am in Virginia. Yeah, unfortunately, we can't visit Carl in Virginia because he is one of the leaders of a new group of doctors with a perspective of really figuring out what works and putting the time in and also being an example for their patients. And that's just awesome because there's so many doctors that hop on trends. So let's get back to those cardiometabolic risk factors. And could you explain that in English, please? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so like I said, when we talk about lipids, you know, it's those lipoproteins carrying cholesterol and carrying triglycerides. The more belly fat you have, the higher triglycerides you're probably going to have, which means you need more of those bad little lipoprotein boats to carry them around. And then you don't have as much of the good cholesterol lipoproteins to help remove that from the artery walls and take them back. Now, in addition to that, that is where diet can make a difference. So if you do have some of those issues, you know, all the studies lately are showing that a little bit lower glycemic load, more of a Mediterranean, you know, diet, which can be any variation of a vegetarian diet, a paleo diet, a Mediterranean diet, you know, whatever, everyone's different. But that is where it becomes a little bit important to try to start cutting maybe the right calories and not adding the wrong calories necessarily, which is what I think some people tend to do when they hop on toward that train. Can you give um, us some specifics as to what you're talking about there? Like sure. what so, should we be doing? What types of proteins, what types of meats, and what should we be eating and what should we be cutting out to follow this Mediterranean type of approach? Sure. And now again, it has to be very individualized. So you can't just take this advice and completely generalize it to everyone. But sure. I will say that the, the studies always, every time they study fruit and vegetables, they support fruit and vegetables. But for weight loss, there was just a study that showed, as maybe is obvious, you can't just add those onto your baseline diet and expect to lose weight. So they're not like some magic pill. Right. But what we try to do is get people to replace their more empty calories with vegetables because vegetables we know are good and they generally have they're lower fat and they're low carb and they're high fiber. So pretty much everything you can find a study to support will support vegetables. At the same time, if you replace that kind of higher glycemic load or things that like pasta and rice and bread, if you have a little bit of abdominal obesity or any of these other cardiometabolic issues that I'm talking about, like if your fasting sugars aren't as low as they should be or your fasting insulin's high, and that does get into specifics that a doctor has to do, or if your triglycerides are on the higher end or your HDL is low, then you probably want to replace your carbs, the more processed, the more refined carbs specifically, with veggies, and that'll help cut calories too. But then you may want to replace those in an isocaloric fashion when you need calories with things like nuts, olives, avocado, fish, you know, fish fat, and certainly, you know, pretty much any source of protein is probably good. I still support, you know, plenty of different types of meat, fish being probably the number one. It has the most evidence for benefits, but I'm also not anti-red meat like a lot of the studies would suggest. I think there are some interesting confounders that lead people to some of those conclusions, but, you know, you still have to take that with a grain of salt. 
You mean it doesn't cause cancer if you inject it? I'm just kidding. There's a China study. I don't know how many people have really gotten into that who are listening to this podcast. It's probably not the demographic who would be into that type of stuff. But great. That's some great information. And Carl, I totally respect that you don't want to just start shooting out general guidelines like you have it all figured out. Carl, basically, guys, Carl is such a good professional. He's trying to help you guys make better choices and list the things you should probably be eating, but he won't know for sure because everything has to be individualized. Yeah. And that's a problem we run into a lot, just not just in medicine, like what you're talking about, Carl, but also with exercise. But I think there's probably a lot of guys listening who could replace the chips, beer, pizza, (laughs) fast food. Yeah, I'll give you my 30 second that I give to most of my patients who have any cardiometabolic switch, but they all do. I want them to eat more vegetables. That's where I want them to get all their carbs from because it's all fiber, low calorie. I want them to eat a decent amount of protein from animals and dairy and low calorie dairy, I guess is the point there, and potentially meal replacements. I don't want people to avoid fruit unless they really have diabetes that's really sensitive to high sugar fruits and I want them to eat more of whole fat from the nuts, the fish, the fish oil that we talk about. Nuts have a variety of fatty acids but they also have fiber and lignans and protein and everything and then the olives and the avocado and I don't want people to necessarily add refined oils and butters and things like that even if it is coconut oil and olive oil. Why don't you eat a coconut so you get a little protein and fiber. Eat the olives and whatnot. Maybe you just use a little little bit of olive oil or coconut oil. And also, hey, cocoa too, by the way. Chocolate is good. The darker, the better. Excellent. What about cacao, the chocolate powder? Yeah, absolutely. Look at the nutrition facts. It's like all fiber and it is fat, but it's a plant. It's a bean. And every time they study cocoa, even not the darkest chocolates, every study shows benefit. Great. So there you go, guys. Get the cacao or eat chocolate. The darker, the better. And that means less sugar because there's like 70, 80 and it really people throw in sugar to make it taste more like what we commonly associate with chocolate, like a Hershey's bar. But that's not real chocolate, guys. Go for the real stuff. Be man up. Right. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. So don't be a taste pussy, guys eat the tough stuff. All right. So yeah. Okay. That's some great information there. And Carl, let's get into the whole testosterone booster, testosterone replacement, all the stuff that guys have seen on TV and muscle magazines. Let's talk about what the evidence is for that. Should we be concerned about what our testosterone levels are? What's your whole perspective on that as someone who studies hormones. You've reached the end of another episode of the Alpha Man Project. Connect with us at alphamanproject.com. Your feedback is really important to us. It helps us learn, develop, and most importantly, improve our podcast for you. Give us a review on iTunes and receive a free grocery shopping list and four-week muscle building workout. See you next episode.